Elliot, you've served in foreign policy roles in the administrations of Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush and Donald Trump. And you were the US uh, Special Representative for Iran and Venezuela between 2020 and 2021. Um, tell me, you started life as a Democrat, uh, working for Scoop Jackson and uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Uh, first of all, what were they like? And secondly, what was it that um, brought you over from uh, being a Democrat to a Republican? Uh, we could go on those questions for three hours. <laughs> uh, but uh, Jackson, let me put it briefly, Jackson was a Norwegian. His parents were Norwegian immigrants. He was quite stolid, not very charismatic, but completely uh, solid tough, strong, reliable. Um, Pat was an Irishman. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for these national. <laughs> but um, he was uh, flamboyant. Um, <clears throat> he was uh, mercurial. Um, he was a difficult man to work for, um, though it was rewarding because he was also a very brilliant man and brilliant public servant. That was the old Democratic Party. That was the Democratic Party of Roosevelt and Truman and Kennedy and Johnson. And I believe, as so many others like in those days, Gene Kirkpatrick uh, did, that I didn't leave the Democratic Party so much as the Democratic Party left me. And um, those were the days of McGovern and Jimmy Carter. Um, and I felt that party did not represent my views about world politics. If Scoop, uh, I, I, we're going to be talking what-ifs right at the end of the show, but um, can I give you a what-if now? What would have happened if um, your efforts in 1976 had been successful and Scoop Jackson had become uh, president instead of um, Jimmy Carter? I think we'd have had a much uh, better foreign policy. I would not necessarily say the Soviets would not have invaded Afghanistan, but we would not have had a president who felt he had to change his foreign policy after that invasion because he had misunderstood the Soviets. And do you feel that um, what happens in one part of the world very much affects what happens everywhere else? I'm thinking at the moment, of course, in terms of the withdrawal from Afghanistan um, leading on to um, Putin's invasion of Ukraine and possible lack of victory in Ukraine, possibly then leading on to an invasion of Taiwan, obviously thousands of miles away. But do you see uh, the world in that interconnected way? I think so. Reliability and deterrence um, relate all of those things to each other. And a country that, uh, for example, abandons commitments in one place uh, is going to be understood to be a, an unreliable ally, likely to abandon another commitment. And I think the opposite is also true. So while there's no automaticity here, I, I think the relationship is very strong between one crisis and another. With the events of 9-11 uh, and the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan now over 20 years ago, how do you feel the overthrow of Saddam uh, will be seen by history, by historians, maybe 50 or 100 years hence. I am more optimistic about that. Um, uh, President Bush has made the comment, George W. Bush, that history is going to uh, have a better opinion of him. I think if you look at Iraq now, 
they've had a whole series of democratic elections, imperfect, but democratic. And I think they would be, in fact, a peaceful working democracy were it not for Iran, for the intervention of Iran, for Iran's uh, support for the Shia militia groups. And I think that if one looks a few decades in the future, uh, I, I hope that at some point the Islamic Republic will have fallen and the people of Iran will be governing themselves. And while there will be rivalries with Iraq, there won't be this kind of intervention. If one were able to look back at that point and say, the beginning of a stable democratic Iraq came with the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, um, the war will look a lot better. You're currently a senior fellow of uh, Middle Eastern studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, what do you feel um, at the moment with regard to uh, President Biden's statement that there's, quote, no clear evidence, unquote, that Iran was behind the 7th of October um, massacres in southern Israel? I think it's a bizarre statement. <clears throat> uh, one if he means that um, we do not have the smoking gun, that is, we do not have an intercept in which the uh, Ayatollah Khamenei or the head of the of the Quds Force says, do it today. Um, well, that's, I'm sure, correct, but not very meaningful. Um, it, it's clear that Hamas, like Hezbollah, could not be the kind of um, well-organized, well-armed group um, if it were not for Iranian money, uh, training, weapons. Uh, it's just, it would be a, a wholly different situation. Um, so to say that um, we have no direct evidence, I think, is, uh, you know, in one, in one way, it's surely true, but in another way, it's surely meaningless. We have all the evidence we need of Iranian support for Hamas. You know, it, it, it's curious. When I was in the Bush White House, it's 20 years ago, there was a debate among experts as to whether Iran would support Hamas because it is a Sunni group. It's the Muslim Brotherhood. Surely the Shia in Iran would not. Well, uh, of, of course, we now know that that was a foolish debate to have. And we have had 20 years of significant Iranian support for Hamas. And um, how do you think the uh, um, Biden administration should punish Iran for the latest uh, atrocity, the killing of three uh, American servicemen and women? Well, I think I would uh, I would take the words from your question. And the two words are punish Iran. Uh, what we have been doing, and it's not fair just to blame President Biden for this, we've been doing it, we, the United States, have been doing it for about 30 years, is um, never punishing Iran. There was one exception under Reagan in 88 when we essentially sank the Iranian Navy. And then there's the killing of Soleimani. But Iran has been killing Americans really from the beginning of the Islamic Republic through proxies. And we've let them get away with it. We've never, in a sense, laid down the law and said, if you kill Americans through proxies, we will go after you, not the proxies. That is what I think President Biden should be doing now. I think the proxies are expendable from the point of view of Iran. 
So if you damage them or kill some of them, the Iranians don't care. That's what they're there for. Um, Iran must be punished itself. And that does not mean World War III, and it does not mean, you know, bombing Tehran tomorrow. But it means looking at Iranian assets. Maybe you start with Iranian assets overseas, Iranian bases in, say, Yemen. Maybe you start with Iranian naval assets in the Gulf rather than Iran uh, proper. But, but I think the point, the lesson that's been learned by Iran over the years is that they are immune from punishment. And I think we need to correct that. Um, some people in the Biden administration have called the Biden doctrine um, as involving calling for a uh, Palestinian state. Now, you're a prominent opponent of the two-state so-called solution in Palestine. Um, and you've called it a magical incantation in a in a recent excellent essay in uh, was it Atlantic uh, magazine in the, was, tablet tablet in the tablet sorry yes a first class um, uh, piece of writing and uh, and certainly doesn't pull any punches but um, let's let's talk about the uh, the two state solution which um, as you point out in this article seems to be uh, a sort of shibboleth of the entire foreign policy establishment of um, of pretty much every country in the west but you say it's the wrong thing to do. Why is that? First, uh, I think just calling for the two-state solution as if it were merely a matter of, um, you know, three days of negotiations um, fails to recall the history. People have been trying to do this for a very long time, since Oslo, 1993. Um, and there are many, many difficulties, such as what do you do about Jerusalem? What do you do about the division of Jerusalem? If you're, are you going to divide it? Where are the borders of this Palestinian state? There are questions like that. Um, but I think there's a there is a, a deeper problem here, which is that people are paying very little attention to the nature of this state. Um, what is, for example, what is its relationship going to be to terrorist groups or to Iran. Um, people use the word de-radicalization. What is going to be taught in its schools? Um, if you put a weak, and it will be, of course, almost by definition, if you create it overnight, if you put a weak state there in the West Bank, it's a juicy target for Iran. Uh, which has pursued a policy in Gaza, in Yemen, in above all in Lebanon, of creating anti-Israel proxies. Uh, if you do that in the West Bank, the danger to Israel is even deeper. And I'm very struck by the fact that people mostly call people, Josep uh, uh, Borrell of the EU, uh, Guterres of the United Nations, and most recently, um, President Blinken, uh, President Biden, and Secretary Blinken call for um, a sovereign, independent Palestinian state. And the word that is missing in that phrase is democratic. So I asked in this article, why do they not call for a democratic Palestinian state? And I think the answer is one of two things. There is no democratic Arab state. There is no Arab democracy today. So they think that it's unrealistic. And they fear 
that if you had an election, Moss would win. And indeed, the best public opinion polls of Gaza and the West Bank suggest that Hamas would win. So wait a minute. You want to create a Palestinian state in which the majority of voters would vote for Hamas? How is that supposed to contribute to peace in the Middle East? I think this has not been thought through. That's why I think it's an incantation. Don't you think also it would be seen, especially if it happened uh, at all soon, as, as essentially rewarding um, Hamas for the 7th of October massacre? Absolutely. If you look at where this question of Palestinian statehood was in 2023, before October 7th, or the two preceding years under Biden, it was really off the agenda. And uh, if Hamas is, as you say, rewarded for putting it back on the agenda, um, that is a terrible lesson to teach. And how could it possibly be demilitarized? I mean, we, we've we've had a history of demilitarization in the 1930s, obviously, with the Rhineland, which didn't uh, end up very well. I, I think you point out in your article, don't you, that if in a future Palestinian state, the um, the state wanted to upgrade its police force, for example, and, and buy it various weapons that uh, are very much on the cusp of, of an army, of being an army, um, it would become very quickly clear that um, that uh, Palestine was not uh, another Costa Rica, for example, with, with no army at all. Um, how could that possibly be, be policed by the rest of the world? And, uh, you know, Israel does the policing now, <clears throat> but once you've created this sovereign, independent state, any intervention by Israel becomes an act of war under international law. So the Israelis would not so easily be able to do it. Um, there is now an enormous amount of smuggling of weapons um, across the Egyptian border into Gaza, across the Jordanian border into the West Bank. And these, this is all being done by Iran. So they would no doubt try this. Uh, it's easy to say, well, of course, it would be demilitarized. Indeed, Secretary of State Blinken said it yesterday. Of course, it must be a demilitarized state. But the reference to the Rhineland that I made in the article, I think, was opposite because all, well, all is too strong. Many Germans viewed uh, the, the agreement they had made about the Rhineland uh, at Versailles uh, to have been foisted upon them at a moment of weakness. Uh, and they opposed it. And you, you know, you have the stab in the back legend and so on. I think that would happen in a Palestine. The conditions that it, that had been agreed to to create the state would be understood as unfair impositions by foreigners, by the Americans, by the Jews, whoever you want. Um, and there would be an effort to start eroding them quickly. I'm just going to quote you a couple of uh, sentences from this uh, article where you write, a peaceful Palestinian state that represents no threat to Israel is a mirage. It's an illusion indulged by people in the West who want to seem progressive and compassionate and those in the Arab world who fear resisting the powerful anti-Israel currents that circulate there and are now fortified by Iran. The future security of Israel depends in good part on resisting the two-state formula for endless conflict. Um do you feel that the I, I, one gets a sense that uh, the um, uh, Trump 
any future Trump administration might understand that, uh, will understand that. Uh, how could you uh, persuade the uh, the Democrats of this? That will be very hard. And I think it would not be smart to try to persuade them to abandon the project. I think the smarter way would be to try to discuss the conditionality. Um, Lincoln said on February seventh, uh, in when when in Israel, that there must be a time-bound, irreversible path to Palestinian statehood, and that is, I think, exactly wrong, because it erases conditionality. I think what one might persuade them of is um, the need to impose a series of conditions. Uh, before one would create and recognize a Palestinian state, many many of those conditions would be ones that President Biden would agree with. Uh, security conditions, for example, to protect Israel, and by the way, Jordan. Um, so I think the conditionality would be a key argument to make at this point, because if the conditions are quite sensible, you've got to end the teaching of hatred. You've got to end naming schools and public squares after terrorist murderers. Um, you've got to have an effective and efficient government, um, et cetera. If, if you set those conditions, then I, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think they're going to be reached. Um, it's one of the reasons the Palestinian state does not exist today. In the Trump plan, which did call for Palestinian statehood, um, there was an elaborate set of conditions that had to be met about Palestinian politics, about security. Um, and, and that is, I think, the argument to make to Democrats. Even if the goal is correct, uh, to do it overnight, to recognize a Palestinian state without those conditions is, by the way, no favor to Palestinians. And that is an argument I would make, too. And I, I use the phrase in that article, if you had an independent Palestinian state, you could say Palestine would be free. But Palestinians would not be. I think that, well, George Bush used to use the phrase, the soft bigotry of low expectations. I think we need to impose some expectations on Palestinians, or we are helping those in their society who would not like to see these reforms. Uh, we should be helping the people who want to change Palestinian society for the better. Yeah, so you were uh, Ronald Reagan's Assistant Secretary for Human Rights, and uh, there would be no human rights, essentially, in the kind of Palestinian state that was most likely to uh, come about if it were to come about soon. Is right. that fair? I think it is fair, and I think we in the West are complicit in this. It was the Israelis with, with uh, American and European support who handed Palestine to Yasser Arafat, who crushed civil society very quickly and ruled as, a, as an autocrat. Uh, now President Abbas rules as an autocrat. If you read the um, Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch, these are left of center organizations, and they're not <clears throat> particularly friendly to Israel. If you read what they say about life uh, in the West Bank over these decades, um, there's no respect for human rights. There's no freedom of press. There's no independent judiciary. Surely Palestinians have a right 
to expect those things in a Palestinian state if one is ever created. Let's move on to another uh, country which doesn't have any of those things either, which is China. Um, I, I know you were a friend of Henry Kissinger's and uh, and obviously his legacy is something that's being uh, discussed a lot at the moment in the uh, immediate aftermath of his death. Do you think that um, the realpolitik that Henry uh, personified, um, a former guest on this uh, podcast, I hasten to add, um, uh, specifically with regard to China, is something that's going to be seen in the long run as being a, a positive aspect of his legacy, or, or might he be seen as the person who opened up the opportunity for uh, the Chinese to um, to essentially challenge America's superpower status? Uh, I think the latter. I, I think there will be a lot of criticism. I think that that. Henry's view, and more generally the realpolitik view, sees players on the international scene as countries, and they are black boxes. There is a country called China, and it has a leader, whether it's Hu Jintao or now it's Xi Jinping, but and in Russia, that's a black box, and there's a leader, Putin, and you deal with him. The This view, Henry's view, never really sees societies. It just sees the leadership. And uh, that is, I think, in the case of China, a great mistake. The Chinese have been trying for, what, 125 or 150 years now to figure out how to modernize. And they have figured out pretty well how to modernize their economy. They have not figured it out with respect to their political system. And Many, many Chinese want to. Um, Henry was never really responsive to those questions. And I think it's I think it is a fair criticism uh, of him and will be in the coming uh, decades. One of the um, adjectives um, thrown about uh, about you and uh, and um, your friends and uh, and supporters is the uh, term neoconservative. Is it a useful label? Would it have been a useful label at the time historically for people uh, writing about um, the the present day? Does does neoconservative actually mean very much? And if so, uh, if so, what? I think it was a useful label. There was a um, development in, I would say, the 60s and 70s of the, the so-called limits of social policy school of Democrats who believed that more was being asked of government than it could deliver. Uh, and that many Democrats, including people like Seymour Martin Lipset, Nathan Glazer, other sociologists, Daniel Bell, Irving Kristol, um, and it had a foreign policy side, too, of Democrats like Jackson and Moynihan, as opposed to George McGovern, Jimmy Carter. Um, and it, it did describe a group of people who included uh, those names. I uh, think it is not a meaningful uh, expression now, partly because they're gone, and most of the remaining neoconservatives, like me, are pretty much now accurately described as conservatives. When I hear the term neocon nowadays, um, 
frankly, it is most often used to mean warmonger or even <laughs> uh, Jew warmonger. I mean, it's it's a piece yeah. of invective these days. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I don't I don't use I don't run away from it. Um, but there are very few of us left, I think, who are accurately described that way. You've been appointed by President Biden to the U.S. Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy, chalking up yet another president who uh, wants your advice, uh, Elliot. Uh, what does it do? Well, to be fair to President Biden, this is a bipartisan commission, so they have to appoint some Republicans. And on those appointments... And they thought you were the least bad while to <laughs> appoint. <laughs> you know, I, they take advice from Senator McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate. And unless, as I understand the system, unless you have been personally abusive, that is, you, you know, you've done tweets and blogs that are personally abusive to the president, um, then they take Senator McConnell's advice. What does it do? It is supposed to provide oversight for, um, first of all, broadcasting, uh, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, Voice of America, uh, Radio Farda in in um, Farsi, those activities, and really all the public diplomacy activities that used to be in the U.S. Intelligence Agency, USI, excuse me, U.S. Information Agency, USIA, until it was disbanded about 12, 25 years ago. Um, the idea is to see if if U.S. if the State Department and <clears throat> other agencies are doing public diplomacy and doing it well. Um, and it, you know, we're supposed to do reports and we're supposed to hold hearings and do that sort of thing. The, the commission's been quite inactive for about five or 10 years. Um, we need to get, it hasn't even had a full complement of commissioners uh, and doesn't now. I hope that this year uh, we'll get the full complement and, and, um, and then we shall see if we can have a beneficial impact. You advised uh, President Reagan on foreign policy in South America um, back in the uh, back in the day. What um, where Cuba, of course, must have been one of the um, one of the countries that you were keeping a very close eye on. What's your predictions for for Cuba? I mean, of all the places um, in that area, it really should be a, a democracy now, shouldn't it? Um, with Fidel Castro long dead and so on. What? Uh, how how do you see the future of Cuba panning out? It's hard to be terribly optimistic because it's been, what, 40, 64 years of uh, communist rule. Um, and, you know, Fidel's death turned out not to be the moment when there was going to be real change. It's still very much a communist uh, system. Um, one can only hope that over time it evolves at least in the direction of God, what we used to call Hungarian communism back in the um, 1970s and 80s, rather than, say, Soviet or Romanian or East German communism. Um, but it's hard to see why today, over the next, let's say, 10 years, it would evolve toward real democracy. It isn't evolving at all. That is, it isn't a less repressive form of communist dictatorship than it was under Fidel uh, when he was alive. There is zero um, freedom of speech, media freedom, 
there is uh, there is no independence for courts. There are still many, many political prisoners. So there's been no evolution at all. Um, and I think we're going to have to wait a while to see any happen. That's tragic. Um, now, the questions that I ask every uh, one of my um, guests, uh, what book are you reading? I only really allow you to talk about history books or biographies, because that's what we concentrate on in this uh, in this podcast. Have you got one for me? Yeah, I'm reading a book called President Garfield. This is a new Oh, book. yes, yes, absolutely. I've been given that. Yes, I, I'm, uh, I must I'm get around to that. Are you enjoying it? it? Good. This yeah. is something I knew nothing about. I assume Garfield was one of these late 19th century, hopelessly failed presidents. He was the last president born in a log cabin. Uh, he was a Civil War general. He was Speaker of the House. There's every reason to think he would have been a uh, very good, if not great, president. But he was, uh, I don't want to give the story away, but he was <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, I think. <laughs> so if he hadn't been, you, you, you'd you um, think that he could have been up there amongst the uh, sort of, what, the captain of the second division, as it were. Yeah, second division, yeah. right. Yeah, um, okay. Life. Um, fantastic. Oh well, um, yes, I've uh, I've been told how good that book is as well. So um, this is the moment at which I should remember his uh, the author's surname. But good year. Good. That's right. Thank you. Good. I feel uh, less embarrassed now. And um, and the other question is your your favorite what if your historical counterfactual. What uh, what's the one that you enjoy thinking about? What if the debate among the Ottoman reformers who had taken over um, had led them not to side with the Germans in 1914. It was apparently a close run thing. And the British and French and Russians were making tremendous efforts to persuade the Ottomans to remain neutral. What if they had remained neutral? Um, so you have no Gallipoli. Uh, you have no Balfour Declaration, perhaps. You have no Arab revolt. Um, it, it's a very, to me, it's a fascinating question. You might, you might also uh, have got the Russian uh, wheat through the Dardanelles, giving them enough money to continue fighting the uh, the war on the uh, on the Eastern Front as yeah. well. They were they were pretty much uh, desperate to to do that, and um, and you certainly wouldn't have got the kind of um, the overthrow of the Caliphate in 1922, the fundamentalist uh, Islamic. Um, uh, essentially fascism that uh, we've seen so much of. Yeah. yeah, that's a great one. I've never thought about that one. You're absolutely right. But um, uh, I'm not sure Winston Churchill comes out brilliantly from this because not because of Gallipoli. Um, my my views on that are, uh, um, are pretty settled. But he, of course, um, had two big um, um, warships that were being... Yeah were being built in uh, in Britain yeah. that he essentially sequestered and then he attacked the uh, the forts in November 1914 the outer forts which put the uh, the Turks uh, on their metal and um and and probably did a bit more than harm than good in the short run at least I think that's right and the seizure of those two ships was uh, perhaps the turning point so Churchill Churchill is problem in this uh, what if yeah, yeah, no, that's true. But um, equally, we did get the warships, of course, which is jolly um, useful. Um, thank you so much, uh, Elliot, for this really stimulating and uh, and intellectually enjoyable um, 
time. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Elliot. On the next episode of Secrets of Statecraft, my guest will be Toby Young, the free speech advocate and founder of The Daily Skeptic. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.